Try to envision the following imaginary story for just a moment. While at work one Friday afternoon, Sarah says to her friend and co-worker, Laura, there's this new play that's being premiered tonight at our local theater, and I'm dying to see it. The playwright is supposedly world-renowned and absolutely brilliant. Two tickets were given to me by someone who works backstage. Do you want to come with me? Laura says, well, sure, but what's it about? Sarah says, <laughs> Sarah says, it's a mystery involving heartache and sacrifice and redemption and the power of unrelenting love. It's amazing. Wow, sounds intriguing, Laura says. I'm in. So upon arrival and before the play is about to begin, they, they thought they heard something unusual. thought they heard some yelling and maybe even some arguing backstage, but they didn't think much of it. They figured it was just a backstage uh, person, you know, not getting a prop in the right place or something like that. But they would soon find out the nature of this conflict. As the play unfolds, the male protagonist in the story survives a near-death experience and comes through in the clutch by defeating the evil mastermind who is attempting to destroy his beloved female actress, and at the moment of his near-death display of selfless love, the female actress stops the show, walks to the center of the stage, and yells, I've had it. I've had enough. I hate my role. I hate this whole story. I hate that playwright sitting on the back row who wrote this silly tale. I'm through with it. And you know what? From now on, I'm the hero of this story. I'm the main event, so get used to it. Sarah and Laura blink and stare at each other and think, well, that was certainly unexpected. What happens when characters in a great story do not play the right role? Well, there's only one obvious outcome. The glory of the story is lost, right? The glory and the beauty of the narrative is gutted for its greatness. Even perverted and twisted. And in a very real way, though, God's story for humanity involves prescribed roles. And when acted out in the drama of human marriage, these roles powerfully picture a perfect love such that the world can never exceed. The mystery of marriage, when acted according to the master playwright script, shows the world just how relentless Jesus' love really is and how amazing it is to live under his loving headship and authority. Indeed, the glory of God's gospel is at stake. Will we, married couples here, take the stage, play our roles, and magnify the author of it all. Before we do a bit of a recap and situate ourselves back in the book of Ephesians, allow me to make just a, a small caveat. If you're a, a teen or a child or a single adult or a previously married adult or a widow or a widower or in some other situation I've, I've not described, uh, now is not the time to head for the door. Please don't. Uh, we never know how God's Word 
is wanting to work its way into our souls. Oftentimes, we want to overly control how he meets us in his grace, in his scriptures. I have even seen the Lord draw people to himself through the strangest of Bible studies on topics not even near or close to the nature of the gospel. The Lord works in amazing ways, and his word for you this morning, even if you're not seeing the immediate direct connection, is still nevertheless for you and for your good. I'd also say to this group, soften your hearts, for as is often the case, any broaching of this topic comes with a lot of baggage, comes with a lot of perhaps pain and heartache, and I would encourage you, that's not our aim to stir a wound or anything like that today. Rather, than trying to block out those thoughts or those fears or just not think about them, try a different approach. Bring them to the Lord. Bring them to His Word. Don't run from them or, or quarantine them from the here and now. Bring those thoughts, those fears to the Lord. And to that end, let's pray and ask His Spirit to illumine us before we make any further progress. Now, Father, hear the cries of our hearts. As we just mentioned, any time we speak on or consider the topic of marriage, there is a whole host of fears and concerns and regrets and heartache that is unearthed. Comfort, assure, convict, encourage your people now. We are nothing if we don't have the Spirit's help, so we ask that He would illumine the Scriptures, help us to see what we should see, and to respond as we ought. In Christ we pray. Amen. Well, the last time we considered Ephesians 5 together, we discussed verses 15 through 20. So looking at the passage here, we'll be working through not just our, our verses here this morning, but looking before and after the text under consideration. So we looked at, though, in verses 15 through 20, the call to wisdom-controlled living, being careful how we walk, making the best use of our time, not being foolish, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And in verses 18 through 20, we noted the call to spirit-controlled living. Previously, we mentioned how the call to be filled with the Spirit was the, the controlling command in this passage in particular, followed by four participles that basically fill in and flesh out what that life in the Spirit, life under the Spirit's control, looks like. And those four participles that carry it out for us are speaking to one another, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing making melody in our hearts to the Lord, giving thanks to the Lord, and then lastly, submitting, in verse 21, submitting to one another. Each participle might be compared to a, a door in a long hallway. And we opened each of those first three doors in the hallway last time we considered, but I stopped before considering the fourth because it, it really opens up a whole other wing of the house. And once you go through it, you really need to commit to the tour, so to speak. So today, we're opening door four, and we're going to check out the rest of the house together. Paul will unpack the different relationships in which Christians are to honor God's design of authority 
and submission. And as we read verse 21, we might do so alongside and with the help of that controlling verb of being filled with the Spirit. So we might say, be filled with the Spirit by submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So in Paul's thinking, and in this particular text, submitting to one another is the overarching call to live under and within the orbit and sphere in which God has placed a person in such a way that reveres Christ and honors God's authority in the world. The first example Paul gives of this is verse 22, which carries us all the way through verse 33. And this concerns husbands and wives. The same call to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ equally applies to children living under the authority of their parents in chapter 6, 1 through 4, and bondservants living under the authority of their masters in 6, 5 through 9. Two more categories we'll consider at a later time. Now, before we make any more progress into really the main idea that Paul's driving through here, we need to really look at this linchpin verse, verse 21, and make a few observations because it really is a load-bearing wall. What you do with that wall is very significant, and it can lead to a lot of different conclusions that we have to reckon with. So it's a little bit dense here, but I'm sure we can track through it together. A good number of theologians over the course of the last 50 plus years or so have really drilled into verse 21 arguing that submitting to one another is a mutual submission involving an equal degree of submission owed by a husband to his wife as a wife to her husband. This position is known popularly as an egalitarian view or interpretation. And it would see this text and the point of it as as offering no unique leadership to husbands. Now, they would argue that all Paul meant here was just to echo his counsel from Philippians chapter 2, to do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, to count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Or they'd want to stress the parallel to Jesus' words in John 13 and elsewhere, to love one another. The analogy might be to the cart of marriage is being pulled by two oxen side by side, the husband and wife doing the work of carrying out marriage. There is no Christian husband or wife in the world that would disagree, however, with that foundation. That all Christian marriage, even as we considered yesterday in the marriage seminar, is indeed grounded and established on the foundation of selfless love. Absolutely, even in the the Kestings shared uh, several testimonies of their life and experience together, and much of it was grounded in a mutual selfless giving of one another. This is indeed true of all Christian relationships, and in particular, marriage. But the question to ask is, is this the point of Paul's argument here? Is this the boulevard he's pulled out on and wants to drive us down, logically speaking, conceptually speaking? What I believe we'll see is rather than proposing a mutual submission in which Christian marriages have no leader, 
but simply a pair of equals. Paul is arguing for a beautiful complementary design, anchored in creation and pointed toward gospel love. Now, much could be said, and I could qualify so much uh, in terms of the equality of sharing the image of God. There is no uniqueness in which God's created image is in manhood more than womanhood. And yet, we have to see that within God's authority structure, there is a beauty and a complementary design. But three brief reasons why I think that verse 21 teaches or does not teach a mutual submission in the sense that an egalitarian view would lay forth. First is the context just contradicts it. Paul proceeds to give three examples of spirit-filled submission that reveres Christ's design for human relationships, wives to husbands, children to parents, bondservants to their masters. And in no way does Paul intend to signal that parents should also be submitting themselves to their children. Nor does Paul intend to communicate that masters should be submitting themselves to their bondservants. Rather, children are to obey and to honor their parents, while fathers are never to provoke their children to anger. Bondservants are to obey their masters with sincerity, as if they were obeying Christ. While masters must remember that the ultimate boss over everything is God, and he could care less about human status in this world. And beautifully, Paul recognizes the real leadership at work in these arenas of life, while calling leadership to lead in a selfless, Godward manner. Secondly, though, the interpretation that an egalitarian view would put forward is, is novel to the history of the church, which is always a big yellow flag at least. It's been noted that in the history of the church, there hasn't been a single author before 1968 to assert that Ephesians 5 does not teach male headship and authority in marriage. Century upon century, it has been understood from this text that Christians should be subject to their God-given authorities unique to their situations in life. It's also been clearly understood that these authorities must exercise sacrificial concern, even love, as they humbly lead. And then the last reason is that the interpretation just doesn't square. It doesn't harmonize with the rest of what the Bible, the New Testament in particular, teaches about husbands and wives. In Colossians 3, verse 18, and Titus 2, 5, and 1 Peter 3, these passages all speak to the Christian wife's responsibility to lovingly submit to her husband out of obedience to Christ. There is no mutuality of submission outlined or even hinted at in any of these other passages. As Pastor Miller has sometimes said in premarital counseling sessions, if God had wanted to design Uh, or if if God has wanted marriages to be run by a simple democracy, he would have designed it to involve three people. Since he did not, there must be a leader, or else the inevitable outcome is a constant state of stalemate. However, what is clearly evident is the call to Christian husbands to take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership that protects and provides for those under his care, as well as the wife's calling to honor and courage 
and to uplift her husband's leadership in all the unique ways that God has uniquely gifted her. So what is the essence of... I'm behind a little bit here. What is the essence of verse 21? Imagine you were seeing that during that amazing illustration that just, just made it all come, you know, work for you. The essence of verse 21 is as a witness to spirit-controlled living and out of reverence for Christ, be subject to those in positions of authority over you. Now, having dealt with verse 21, we're prepped and ready for now what follows. Even though we cannot possibly answer all the questions that this passage presents, nor can we endlessly lift, list off all the abuses of this, uh, that this text has perhaps been used to justify in certain times and ways, or to qualify the dozens of things headship and submission does not mean. Nevertheless, let's begin by considering the Christian wife's role in the drama of redemption. So we're seeing verse 21 as that door that we've walked through, that we're standing upon, that harks back to verse 18, that tells us what spirit-controlled living looks like. And in verses 22 through 24, the wife's role in the drama of redemption. We read in 22 through 24, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The drama of redemption. This is a story that cannot be improved upon. It's the best story ever written. In fact, it's the story to rule all stories. And as the primary vehicle for getting the word out, to a lost and watching world of how great this story is, God commissions every man and woman who have entered into the covenant of marriage to go public with this great story. In the text before us, it's as if the Christian wife now walks to the stage first. She has been cast to play the role of the precious, blood-bought church of the living God. And that is anything but a demeaning side role. And in this role, she powerfully displays the beauty of transformed sinners who no longer serve their own desires, but lose their self-centered old identity in union with their head. And as the head of household, husbands are to provide loving and gracious authority to his spouse and all those under his care. What submission is not? Well, it's clear that it is not just a mere subservience. It is not a doormat lifestyle. It's not a hotel bellhop job description. It's not the skill of flattering your husband or a mindless whatever you say, whatever you want, honey, type of existence. No. And while verse 24 mentions that a wife should submit in everything, It most certainly does not imply that nothing should be said in situations where sin runs rampant in the relationship. God also places Christian marriages under the authority of the local church and her elders who provide accountability and protection under the headship of Christ should sin begin to 
wreck a home. Submission in everything means a wife's orientation is wholly and completely to track with the leadership of her husband. So what submission is? Well, it is the Genesis 2.18 role of, of helper lived out in real time and space, providing a support, encouragement, and affirmation in the husband's role to bear up under this what feels oftentimes like an impossible mantle of leadership. It is the respectable and pure conduct that the Apostle Peter speaks of, the hidden beauty of the heart, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in the, in the sight of God is very precious, Peter says. As Titus describes, it looks like self-control in speech, a disciple-making attitude and spirit towards other women a specialist at cultivating life in the home, and one who genuinely loves her kids and her husband, though they drive you nuts a lot of times. Can't you feel, though, the countercultural nature and the way this runs against the grain to our even modern sensibilities of manhood and womanhood? And yet God says, that description is beautiful in my sight. What is submission for? Well, for starters, it's life as God designed since creation. It's factory settings. It fits the mold. It breeds a shalom-like flourishing to life that is just good. It also projects a parable of an eternal reality it compellingly shines forth the greatness of God's gospel. And to the degree it is beautiful when the church joyfully trusts and honors Christ's headship, it is beautiful when a wife honors and trusts the headship of her husband, even in and amidst the sin that will haunt every Christian marriage until we all see Christ. So joyful, God-glorifying submission in, in marriage by a Christian wife is ultimately for the Lord, the text says. But it is for the gospel, and it is for the blessing of husbands and children. So the remainder of chapter 5 homes in on a husband's role, which is, in proportion, the lion's share of the directives that Paul gives it can be vast and daunting, to say the least. But let's now examine a, a husband's role in the drama of redemption, which is love. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of, word, of water with the word. A phrase that we've prayed a few times this morning, we've, we've sung at least a couple times, and we'll come back to, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Husband love, it's not a fleeting sense of emotion or a social contentment that sort of thinks, hey, we're a good couple, she makes me look pretty good in public. I'm willing to stick this thing out because we're a fairly compatible match. I think we'll, you know, we'll stick to this. Now, true husband love 
doesn't just take the path of least resistance, and if it's working, we'll run with it until it's not. No, it is modeled after Christ's love for His church. Theologian John Stott points out how in this passage there are five verbs that indicate the unfolding stages of Christ's commitment to His bride. The church, He loved her. He gave Himself for her to sanctify her, having cleansed her, that He might present her to Himself. Why did our Lord endure the cross? For the glory of the Father, absolutely. But so He might sanctify and make holy a people for Himself. The cleansing with washing of water with the Word is likely a reference to ancient Jewish and Greek weddings. And as one commentator writes, he says, before the bride was presented to the bridegroom, she received a cleansing bath and was then dressed in her full bridal array. Well, elsewhere in the New Testament, cleansing is understood as a symbolic removal of the filth of sin. And here the church doesn't clean itself up. Note that. It is cleansed. And it is Christ who cleanses her by washing of water with the Word. So what once took place in a ritual cleansing with water now happens through the proclamation of the Word of God. But what is the goal of this cleansing? That He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So Christ's purpose in sanctifying the church is so that He can present His bride to Himself at the end of time. She will be extraordinarily beautiful, without spot, without a single blemish or imperfection, no wrinkles, no signs of age. Hers is a moral beauty that only Christ could prepare. He has accomplished every aspect of her glory, and He alone deserves the praise. When we now look to our earthly experience, husbands in the here and now are to selflessly love their wives, giving themselves up for her in every way, sanctifying her, making her holy through the normal means of Christian discipleship, through the Word, through prayer, through engaging in service for the kingdom of God together, in locking arms in the proclamation of the gospel to those in your lives that need it most. All in preparation for her appearance before her Savior one day. That is a tall order for Christian husbands. And let's just establish the fact right now we have all failed who find ourselves in this boat in countless ways. But in the grace of Christ, we are able to lead with this goal in view. So Christian husband, have, have you perhaps forgotten this aspect of your job description? Do you think about your responsibility to disciple your wife so she'll be ready to stand before Jesus one day? 
Do you think about your partnership with Christ in that sense? Do you think of your responsibilities as perhaps merely providing food and shelter and other physical provisions and opportunities for her and the kids and the family and all these sorts of things, but to the neglect of the preparation of the soul? Younger men, does this goal frighten you such that you're afraid to even pursue Christian marriage at all? Do not fear. Christ is with us. He will not call us to obey anything that His grace will not enable. Verses 28 through 30 read, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of His body. Now, doesn't it seem just a bit odd to you that Paul would be right in the middle of talking about selfless love, giving to the point of death like Christ to Christian husbands, and then pause and say, but hey, just a minute, just so you get first things. First, listen guys, you got to really invest in self-care. You know, don't forget to love yourself. That's really, really what's most important. And then once you're really tanked up on the self-love and loving yourself effectively where you're really firing on all cylinders, then you'll have what you need to be able to give to others. When you compare it to sort of the narratives of our day, it sounds pretty normal. But when compared to the narrative of Paul here and the Scriptures in general, it's nowhere to be found. It harmonizes nowhere. The point of Paul's comparison to loving ourselves and loving our own bodies isn't that we need coaching in this regard. It's because it is instinct for us all. And in Paul's line of thinking, men in particular, as instinctive as it is to go get food from the fridge when you're hungry or to dress a wound as soon as it hurts, a husband should be that attuned to the loving care of his wife. Jesus nourishes and cherishes, the text says. Two precious verbs. He nourishes and cherishes His church. For we are united in Him. The head as His body. Similarly, a husband and wife are united to one another by virtue of a one flesh union, which Paul quotes in verse 31 from Genesis chapter 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32 continues, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And what an amazing fusion of both of Paul's ideas regarding Christ and the church. First he gives himself to her, or first he gives of himself for his bride, then he refers to uniting the church to himself as his body. Christ's bride and his body are one in now a profound and indissoluble union. It's amazing. Paul has already written earlier in his epistle of the deep joy that he holds, even personally as an apostle of unfolding the mystery of the gospel hidden in ages past, but is now revealed to the saints in this present age. 
Here he reveals as if he's saying, I'm revealing a mega mystery. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Because it is the profound mystery that Christ, the Savior of the world, would show relentless love for sinners, which is now united as his own body. Union with Christ is the pinnacle hope of the gospel. Union with Christ. If we are not Christ's body and if we are not his bride, we have a bankrupt faith. The hymn, The Sands of Time Are Sinking, written by Anne Ross Cousin, captures this concept so beautifully as it envisions the moment of Christ being united to his bride. It reads, O I am my beloved's, and my beloved's mine. He brings a poor, vile sinner into his house of wine. I stand upon his merit. I know no other stand, not even where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The bride eyes not her garments, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Verse 33 summarizes the end of Paul's thought here with respect to husbands and wives. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. What Paul stresses throughout these verses is not so much the husband's authority over his wife, but his love for her. It is that, but it is overrided with this sense of desperate, relentless love. And this is because Jesus loves her and husbands are called to picture that love to a watching world. In a similar vein, Paul calls wives to submit to and respect their husbands. What is preeminent is her submission ultimately to the Lord so the gospel might be displayed to a watching world. A great marriage, brothers and sisters, is a well-acted drama played by two sinners who know their roles, understand the story they're telling, and sacrificially pour themselves into the belief that the telling of that story is worth it. It's worth it to love and to submit so God's gospel is broadcasted to the ends of the earth. Would you join me in prayer as we pray together, bringing our own lives, our own experiences, and our own need to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would hear the cries of our hearts. Father, perhaps for the non-married folk among us, or those who find themselves in very difficult marriages and circumstances, I pray you'd help them to believe to their very core that marriage is God's design. It's profoundly an amazing gift. I pray you'd lead them to see perhaps those that long for this, that they would pray diligently. I pray that there would be a devotion to cultivating a life that loves these very same virtues 
that we've considered here this morning that, that turns from the kind of vices that kill a healthy Christian marriage, even as single folk. Father, for there to be a resolve to not live in fear. Yes, we live in a society that we fundamentally disagree what a marriage even is and can be. And yet, and we know we live in a culture saturated with the fracturing and the ending of this good gift. And yet, Father, I pray you would give a heart of faith to see the glory, the gospel proclamation that happens through this good gift. I pray we would not lose heart. We would take our desires to you and leave them there. You hear the cries of our hearts and you will answer according to your timing and according to your will. Help us to always remember that as good as the gift of human marriage can be, it is just a sign. It's just a momentary gift pointing to an ultimate love. Jesus, our bridegroom. And the loneliest Christian here today can know the full joy of that love. Father, for husbands and wives, help us to remember the story we're telling, and it's not ourselves, it's not our greatness, it's not what we've done, what we can accomplish, what we can put together in this life. It is the great story of Christ and His love for His bride and His body. Renew a resolve within us to lead and to submit in ways that honor and revere Christ. Perhaps for many of us, help us to reassess the idols of our hearts that may be presently pulling us away from this profound gift and profound mystery. And by your grace and through your enablement, may we press on, every one of us, in this broadcasting of the glorious drama of redemption. It's in Christ we pray. Amen.